Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money COVID-19 edition. On today's show, there will be no prognostications about the spread of disease. There'll be no forecast. There'll be no discussion of what happened in China or where this disease came from. What I do want to offer you today is just a little bit of perspective on crises. And so I'm going to rebroadcast, not broadcast, I'm going to reshare. Instead of hosting a new interview for this week, I'm going to share the interview that I did with my friend AJ Jane last year. If you listen to it, it's worth listening to again. I've listened to it like three or four times. And the story is a really good one. At one point in about 1999, AJ was worth nine figures. That's like a hundred million dollars. Okay. On paper, he was worth over a hundred million dollars. And a few months later, he was worth negative $175,000 because the credit card debt he had taken on to fund his new company didn't go away when the company did. And he found himself out of a marriage, out of a job, and out of money all at the same time. But AJ came back. It was a long road, but he came back. And a few years ago, AJ retired as a very successful insurance executive. And his story and the things that happened to him are really interesting to keep in mind at a time when the stock markets lost 35 40%, when there's a great deal of uncertainty in the world because a lot of people are going to go through a lot of bad stuff over the next few months and they deserve our empathy. And you might be one of those people. I might be one of those people we don't know yet. So our neighbors deserve a lot of empathy, but we also need a lot of perspective. So at the end of this uh, little preamble, please stay tuned to listen to my interview with AJ Jane. Great guy. I hope you're doing well. I hope the eight days or 10 days or whenever this thing started for you have been okay. I hope you've learned a little bit about yourself. Here's something I've learned. If I never play another game of apples to apples, that'd be fine with me. Uh, as you may know, this is a kid's game where it's a game you can play with kids. My kids love it. Again, my kids are nine and 10. And it works kind of like this. There's green apple cards that have clues on them. The clues might be something like hateful or straight as in a line, not as in an orientation, but either way is fine. Or hard work or angry, something like that. They're more positive ones, happy, uh, delightful, things like that. And then you have a handful of red cards, red apples, that then have the names of movies or politicians or categories of work, teachers, firefighters, etc., on them. And so each person who's not the judge, and the judgeship rotates around the table, and the judge picks the winning card, the person who submits the best card, and... What I've learned about my children through this process is that they're not logical. They're completely illogical. And the method by which they choose the best card is very frustrating to me because I, for the most part, choose the best card. And when I lose a game due to someone's bizarre and random habits of selection, it's, uh, it doesn't sit well with me. In these times, I should probably let it go. And I know that when you play a game with your kids, you're not supposed to focus on winning. You're supposed to focus on together time. But I like to win. And apples to apples has been very frustrating for me. All right, I'm going to let it go. It's a good week to focus on gratitude. So I think I'm going to do that. Uh, let's talk about things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the fact that I'm probably not going to miss any meals, even though the financial markets have gone to hell lost tons and tons of dough, but I'm not going to miss any meals unless things get to like Mad Max style pandemonium, which could happen, I guess. But in that situation, I'm going to end up being Mad Max's girlfriend. So I'll probably probably find a way to eat. I'm grateful for our health. Nobody I know has gotten this wretched disease yet. I'm very happy for that. 
and I'm just grateful that as odd as things are, I'm with the people I love the most and who love me as long as I can do what I think I've done a pretty good job of so far is that I have found myself getting frustrated and, and wanting to, or tending to express that frustration toward others as opposed to understanding where that comes from. I think I've done a pretty good job of checking myself so far this week. Not perfect, but pretty good job. And this has actually been a weird reminder of what matters in the world. Like this week, I spent a lot of energy worrying about what isn't happening for me professional, like comedy. And comedy is such a frustrating because even great comedians, even really, really good comedians who have been on late night and have albums and all kinds of stuff, even they aren't getting the kind of work they want when things are great. And so I'm a decade behind them experience wise. And I'm finding myself getting frustrated. Why won't this club booker call me back? Why, why are they telling me they'll only book me if I were a diversity candidate? And it's like, what, what, what? I'm sorry. I'm a straight white male. I, I apologize for my race and orientation and you get that crazy stuff. And I spend way too much time worrying about being overlooked. And it's like a total waste of time. And in the last 10 days, I haven't thought about any of that. I've just been focused on trying to keep things between the lines here at our house. And it's actually been somewhat refreshing in a weird, weird way. I don't know that it's going to last for like, you know, another three or four months, but for now doing what I can, what, what does that mean? Set up a routine, shower every couple of days, wear clothes. Boy, I wish I'd gotten my hair cut before this whole thing started. I know I have very little hair, but the irony is the less hair you have, the more often you have to get a cut. Anyway, also focusing on, hey, what can I do? Again, I want to offer perspective insights where I can. And so I'm working on booking some pretty great interviews. I've got an interview I'm going to record this week with a guy who was a victim of Bernie Madoff, lost $2 million, which was, I think, like 90% of his, of his net worth at the time. And he was not 22 years old when this happened. So it was a pretty big deal. Looking for people also, if you know anybody that lived through the London Blitz, I'd love to talk to somebody like that because that was a far more dramatic way to uh, have to change your living patterns for several months. Be interesting to have that perspective. Also talking to some people who've been affected, club owners, restaurant owners, comedians who are not working right now, staying home. Going to call it comedians at home making their own coffee. Again, hope you're doing well and hope you enjoy this interview with my friend, AJ Jane. You know, people want freedom. They want to become entrepreneurs because they want freedom and they don't want to work and so on. Let me tell you, when you literally have nothing that you have to do, it requires a level of discipline to want to do something. We don't train for no. You know, because we train for a job. We train for a paycheck. We train for creating a retirement nest egg. Yes. Okay. You do that. Then what do you do? That's why I'm doing this podcast. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. AJ, Jane, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, Paul. AJ, I know you as a successful former insurance executive. And it's interesting because you recently shared a story with me that I think will be very useful to a lot of people. I want to talk about losing it all. Mm -hmm. You started a dot-com in... 1999. 
I want you to tell the story of what happened at the dot-com that you started. Yeah, so it was a very interesting time. I was in Indianapolis, and we saw an opportunity to create sort of an integrated platform to provide everything that the race fans needed. At the time, it was kind of fragmented. If you wanted to go to the races, you... This is auto racing, you mean? This is auto racing, yeah. Okay. So I started the company, got some investors involved. We didn't want to take a lot of money from the market because we felt that we could build the platform out. I wasn't taking any salary. I invested some of my own money. It was a wild ride because that was a time when we got into a G4 from one of our investors, picked up one of the race car drivers, took him to Orlando and arranged for a personalized golf lesson for him from David Ledbetter. Oh, good. And then flew another time in a jet, and we had the whole racetrack to us at uh, Rockingham, mm -hmm. and we drove around in this 770-horsepower NASCAR car. And, you know, just through those experiences, I got to meet a lot of different people. You know, there's a guy by the name of Willie Weber, who's Michael Schumacher's agent. And, you know, we were on this yacht in somewhere in Spain and we backed it into this cove to pick him up. And he lives right next to Claudia Schiffer. And, you know, it was just, the valuations were insane. I was in London at a nightclub and there was a banker from Merrill Lynch who was begging me to escrow some of my equity with with them and he was going to give me eight to ten million dollars to do whatever i wanted to do with it mm. and i fundamentally was uncomfortable with that because the valuations were insane you know would that be taking a little money off the table though at that point it would have or was he just trying to loan you money with the stock as collateral he was loaning but if the stock went down to zero then they were left hanging. There was no personal guarantee right. on the loan. So on paper, I had this huge net worth. Mm -hmm. How big did it get? It got in um, nine figures. Nice. Right? So on paper, it was all great. So we built the platform. We spent the time. We spent the money. I worked, you know, I worked very, very hard on that. And then... By the time we were ready to bring it out to the market to actually raise money and do something with it, it was early 2001, and the money had just completely evaporated. Right. Had dried out from the market. So long story short, we had to shut it down. So within a span of perhaps about maybe 12 months, I had spent so much money that my net worth had gone down to about negative $157,000. How did it get to negative $157,000? Because I had used credit cards that were in my personal name to support the operations of this little company that we had, because by the time it had been dwindling down, I kept incurring uh, these expenses. We had branding deals with CVS, and it was crazy. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. And that ended up being a time when I ended up getting divorced. So all of a sudden... Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so one month you have a net... Well, you have a, a paper value of nine figures or $100 million plus. 
based on the percentage of the stock that you owned in this company that was valued at some crazy number. Crazy number, yeah. And then a few months later, everything stops and you come home to your house where your wife is and your two kids are and you have a net worth of negative $157,000. Right. I still have a spreadsheet that shows how much money I owed to each one of the credit cards because I ultimately had to settle with all of them by borrowing money from friends and paying all of that off. And this whole time, what was your wife telling you about the business? She was nervous because there was risk I was taking and there was no income coming in. Mm -hmm. So we were spending money from our savings. I took... And you're flying all over the world. I'm meeting with different people, building this. It was... It was a difficult time because we had two young kids. And, you know, and the other thing that happened was as things were winding down with this company, I, I tried to get a job or something that will generate income for the family. Mm -hmm. And it was a weird time because I interviewed with a pharmaceutical company because his daughter went to the same school where my kids went. So I went in to interview at the highest level of the company. They told me, you know, your credentials are amazing. We love you, but we don't know what to do with you. <laughs> then I had formerly worked at a consulting company, a major consulting company. And I interviewed with them again and they told me they didn't feel I had enough qualifications to do what I needed to do. Even though I have four degrees and I have a PhD in marketing and you know this job was about building a sales pra a practice for Salesforce automation and, and CRM. And then there was another deal where I helped raise money and that company was Houston-based. They offered me a job to come on board signed the letter, and they rescinded it. Within, <laughs> oh, I had bought tickets. I was moving the family. I mean, it was just bizarre set of circumstances that, you know, when you try to think rationally about what was going on, what happened, you know, after we moved, you know, I took on this place called The Cottage, which is a rental because we had to sell the house. Wait, let's go back. Let's go back. You came home one day and your wife told you something. What'd she tell you? She said, um, I, I want to, I want to leave. And, uh, I remember that exactly where I was standing, where she was standing. And I said, where do you want to go? I thought she was talking about leaving to go somewhere. And she said, no, I want to leave, leave. And, you know, it took some time for it to sink in and, and we tried to make it work, but it just didn't. Did you know things were as bad at home as, I know you knew things were bad at work. Were you thinking about what was going on at home while you were trying to save the company? No, I didn't. And that's actually part of the issue is that I was not <laughs> sensitive paying attention. I was not paying attention. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the proverbial, we grew apart, 
type of a thing. And what I was trying to do was really provide for the family yeah. and doing everything that I could. And it was a sinking ship that I was captaining. Yeah. You know, it ended up being that the ship sank and so did my married life. And really going through that experience, what I realized was that everything that I had paid attention to up until that time that I thought was important was just slowly taken away. And the only thing that I had left was my two kids and the friends and family. Right. And all the other trappings of life were gone. How old were you at this point? I was 41. So you're 41. You have no job. You have 157000 in Correct. debt. Yeah. Negative net worth $157,000. You have two children at home. Were you able to hang on to the house? And what did you do? How did you come to terms with where you were? And how did you fight your way out of that? So yes, we had to sell the house. We couldn't continue to live there. We got divorced. How I reconstructed it, to be honest with you, part of it is blurry to me because it was literally just surviving. And I can't completely reconstruct everything in detail. I've tried. Mm. There are pieces that I've not been able to add up. But I do remember the number of calls that used to come from the credit card companies, collection agencies, because I owed them money and I was not paying. I remember all the statements and things that would come in the mail. I'll just throw them into a box, which I didn't even look at. And because you, could, you had no way to pay it. I, exactly. I had no way of paying it, and I just didn't have the, really the emotional strength, probably, to go through all of that because I was focused on the kids. I was doing everything that I could to just survive and, and make sure that the kids' lives were not affected and, and were affected to the least amount possible. And, you know, there is little things that I remember from that experience is, you know, one night at like, at like 11 o'clock at night, I realized that um, my son didn't have socks for going to school the next morning that I needed to do laundry. So, you know, I had to do laundry. And that's when I realized that my wife, my ex-wife, um, was doing so much work to keep everything going in the family, which I had never taken the time to acknowledge and appreciate. Because to me, it sounded like they were all small, small things. And as I was going through all of those experiences, I, I remember there was a moment when my daughter who I don't think she remember, she will remember this, but she said to me, Papa, you're doing a good job being Papa. Mm. And that was a very touching, touching moment. It just validated for me that whatever I was doing and whatever my priority was is where it needed to be. And as an accomplished man at this point, you've been an executive for a while, you have, you have several degrees, very prestigious schools. Did you feel humiliated? Were you pissed off? Like what was going on in your head before she told you that you were doing a good job? Yeah, I was never angry. I didn't feel angry. I was 
I felt betrayed because of the experience from not just this venture, but also the prior experience right before that where I had options which had were, were in the money and and something happened with the parent company and I ended up losing all of that mm. money in the options that never came to be. There was a part of me that was scared, but funnily, there was a part of me, for some reason, I never felt scared about money. There was never a moment where I felt that we were going to get screwed or there was no way of coming out of it. I had this absolute faith that everything will be fine. And I just kept going. You said you were scared. What were you scared about? Really, when I look back more than anything else, it was what will people think of me? Mm. Because, you know, here I did all of this and, you know, here I'm supposed to be the successful guy and, and I'm an immigrant, right? So you leave home and you come to America and you're supposed to be successful and you're supposed to make money. And I didn't. So there is that all that conflict and all that conversation going on in the head. And at the same time, you know, all these calls are coming from the collection companies. And I remember one night, you know, late at night, I was just looking for guidance. I was looking for something. And, and I had gone and printed the forms for filing for personal bankruptcy. And I was just meditating, I don't remember, I, maybe two, three o'clock in the morning, and I, and I just heard, don't do it. And I was like, why, how, you know, what's just like, what the heck? And I just heard, don't do it. So I just said, all right, I'm not going to file, I'm just going to see what happens. And within about a week of that, I got a letter from one of the credit card companies and they said, hey, you owe us this much money and we are willing to talk to you. Now, up until that time, I had never heard of a credit card company willing to talk to you. So I called them. I said, what does this mean? <laughs> and they said, well, we will be willing to take less than what you owe us. I said, oh, how much less? They said, we can take 10% less. And that's where my Indian business upbringing kicked in. And I said, whoa, I think we're negotiating. <laughs> and I said, I will pay 25%. And they said, we'll take 75%. Long story short, we settled at 40%. Nice. And they said, the only condition is that you have to make the payment tomorrow. So I don't quite remember how I got the money, but I got the money. And then what I did was I took that letter. I said, hey, can you fax me a letter? And they faxed me a letter and then I faxed that letter to the second credit card company. Mm. And I said, hey, look what I just did. Would you be willing to do the same? And they did. Mm. They took 40% and they, so I found money. And so that way I was able to chip away and settled everything over a period of about, I don't know, three, four months or so by mm. borrowing money. It was, you know, I settled for like 47% or 45% or weighted average or something. The funny thing about this was that 
I remember the one of the largest payments was to this credit card company and and they were being very sticky about it so finally i got them to a point there were two credit card company companies actually and i got them to the point of where they were willing to accept and the total was 40 grand for the two of them they were the largest ones and i needed 40 grand and i reached out to a friend of mine and he was in florida and he was based in indianapolis and he said that's fine, just go to my house and uh, talk to my assistant and you know she'll cut you a check for 40 grand. I mean, that just blew me away, right? Mm. Because there was no agreement, there was nothing, he just gave me the money. When I was able to, I returned him the money subsequently and you know everything was fine. And the thing that happened, which was a total surprise to me, which I didn't know and I don't think most people know, is that the credit card companies write off the full amount. So you owe to the IRS taxes on the money oh, that they wrote off. no, that's income. That's income. So when I wow. was able to um, reestablish myself starting in 2004, uh, when I did the tax return for 2003, I ended up owing to the IRS the tax on the amount that was written oh, off, which came, as a, which came as a total surprise and I didn't have the money. So there was another loop around that one. What was going on in your head during this time? Walk me through the evolution of sort of where your head was from catastrophe to scared to optimistic to committed to a future during that time and, 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 and how much time elapsed during each phase, do you think? So, I mean, really, it all started around April of 1998. And it went on till March of 2002. And in March of 2002 is when a former neighbor of mine who had just bought a company that I had a good relationship with, and he was actually an investor in my, one of the investors in my deal. He reached out to me and said, hey, Jay, you have a marketing background, and I bought this company, and uh, you know, you're, you're looking to do something. I can hire you as a consultant to help me put together the marketing strategy and so on for this company. So I became, quote unquote, a chief marketing officer for this company. And he started paying me a monthly retainer. And then simultaneously, again, and it came out of the blue, totally unexpectedly. And then simultaneously, just about a week after that, the friend who had loaned me the money, he was the chairman of an insurance company based in Atlanta. And I had done a little bit of strategic planning work with them back in 1999 on a consulting basis. And he reached out to me and said, AJ, I know you're looking for doing something and we are at this point where we are looking for, we are going to have a transition and you can really help us. So all of a sudden I had two consulting <laughs> things going on, which started to bring cash in. Did you feel huge relief at that point or were you? Yeah, it was, it was, um, let me tell you, when you have not had uh, personal income come for a while, for like a long while, yeah. I cried when I had the first check. 
I remember it. It was, it was, it was very emotional to go to the bank to deposit the check. I drove to the bank. I wanted to make sure that I deposited it. <laughs> you were going to mail that one in? Uh-uh. No, no, no. I drove. What was the emotion you were feeling? Just gratitude, man. I mean, it's just um, because both of them happened unexpectedly. And the and the thing is, the meditation outcome of not filing for bankruptcy became relevant in 2004 when over time this insurance company ended up hiring me to come on board. I ended up becoming an officer of a publicly traded insurance company. And if you have a personal bankruptcy in your record, that can never happen. Mm. In financial services, you can't be an officer of an insurance company if you have a personal bankruptcy ever. It's not a seven-year rule, it's ever. Right. So that was so, huge. That was inspiration. Right. There was this, it, it almost felt like events were being orchestrated for me outside of my control. And it was just the surrender and things just kept evolving. Let's talk about that surrender. Because what, what I was asking before is like, from the moment you realized you were deep in debt, had no job until things started turning around, what was that evolution of emotion and orientation to the problem like for you? Did you go through stages? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, it's... Um, when did you surrender? And how did you come to surrender to your situation? I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, well, but you, was, could have bitched and, I mean, you could have bitched and moaned, or you could have, you know, yeah. gone, you could have started. And in fact, you made some healthy choices in your life. And yeah. So, so how did all that you know, go I, down? I, I used to smoke cigarettes and I quit smoking. And so, you know, what happened? I, I remember making a decision sometime in 2001 when we had moved to this apartment place. I wanted to feel the base. I wanted to feel the bottom. I wanted to feel like something stable. And what came to me was the time when I was a teenager and I was at home and everything was great. And at that time, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't have coffee, caffeine, none of that. So I quit all of that. Mm. And that really felt like it was I was getting in touch with my inner being and that was the kind of the start of the surrender process and and there was a former colleague of mine from uh, the job that I had in Indianapolis and he is also from India and his mom was living with him and I spent a tremendous amount of time with them. So what I will do is I'll take the kids to school and then drop them off and then I'll come over to my friend's house and we'll sit and have tea and talk for like three hours. And it was very therapeutic because it was, I had somebody to talk to about all of this that was going on and his mom became like my second mom. Mm -hmm. And she really helped me 
not be vindictive about the divorce and just, you know, be graceful about it. And that really was extremely helpful. So what it did for me was it kept things calm for me and going through all of that, you know, just in the middle of the turmoil. So so the analogy is like I felt like I was in the eye of the storm. Like, mm. you know, in the hurricane, you see the picture from the top? Yes. I felt like I was in the eye of the storm. So there was this all this madness going around me and I was just I felt calm because I there was not a whole heck of a lot I could do. I was trying, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel desperate, right? So I I just had this feeling that everything will be fine because I just felt that my kids did not deserve to suffer i just had this feeling that they deserved to have a good life and the other thing is that you know like when i got my first check from the consulting thing a lot of people what i've experienced is when you are feeling a lot of financial pressure and you all of a sudden get money the desire is to run out to the store and buy things right because there's this pent up demand or you're trying to fill a a void, right? Mm -hmm. You just go and buy things. So somehow during this process, what I had done was, because I knew I couldn't afford, you know, most of the things, I started telling myself, I can afford to buy anything I choose not to. What does that mean? So if I go to a store, instead of feeling bad that I couldn't buy it, I thought, Hey, I can afford to buy it. I choose not to. Right. It was just a mind game. Yeah. And the funny thing is that years later, you know, pretty much we can buy what I want to. I choose not to. Right. I want to talk a little bit about your background and how that related to this experience. Because you talk about surrender and it feels like a very Eastern approach to things. Yeah. Where did you grow up and what were your home life circumstances like? So I grew up in India. You know, we are from a sub culture within India, it's called Jainism, and, you know, we grew up as Jains. And the Jain principles are about being humble and being, you don't pretend and you don't, you know, live a simple life and not live a pretentious life. And I grew up with that, I experienced that, so there was a simplicity to experience of growing up. Having said that, there was a part of me that wanted to rebel against all of that. So, you know, Jains are, they don't eat any meat, they're nonviolent, they don't drink alcohol, they don't smoke, you know, it's, it's a very, very uh, straightforward type of a, a living. So I, I rebelled against all of that, you know, I did all of that. I, I, I wanted to go the other way. Is that only when you came to the demon United States of America? Or? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but, but Score you know, one more. Right, but remember. Way to assimilate. Yeah, yeah, way, way to assimilate, exactly. And, and you know, the, in growing up in India, we didn't have uh, opportunities of meeting women, meeting girls, right? Mm-hmm. So coming to the States, that was, I was 22 and I came. I just turned 22 and it was like, wow, <laughs> this, this place is amazing. You know, and there was a, there was a point I remember 
I said to myself, I love this country. God bless I'm, America. I'm, God bless America, right? So, <laughs> yeah, so, so it just went on. So I floated out there, right? I created all these experiences, flying around, meeting people, hobnobbing with all these people. And, you know, there was all this stuff going on. And when all of that got peeled away, I was searching for what was the base? Mm -hmm. What was the base? And the base was the experiences growing up in, in that culture. Young AJ was still there. Yeah, yeah. Young AJ was still there. How many people were in your house growing up? Well, <laughs> so when... And how we, many toilets did they all share? Yeah, so that's a funny story. It's your measure of success. This is the famous Paul Ollinger toilets per person ratio. Right. So it will shock you that when my father moved back to our hometown, I was uh, eight, and we were just talking. He and I were just talking, and... You know, I had counted 32 people living in the family house. What? And there were two toilets. Oh, my gosh. And he didn't believe me. I said, let's count. <laughs> so we went through family after family, and we counted 32 people, and there were two toilets. So the ratio was 0 0.067, and now I have six toilets, and there's two of us, my wife and I. So by that measure, my <laughs> life is 4,500% better during that time materially right materially i bet you could lose a toilet and still feel pretty good about your life i feel great about my <laughs> life you know, it's like it's just look around it's beautiful how did you find your way to the united states it just happened in india there's generally a lack of resources there's just too many people when i was a teenager i got bullied in my neighborhood and at school also because i had a fairer skin and my eyes were brown and As opposed to? Generally black eyes, mm -hmm. right? So I just got, that was something people picked on me about. And, you know, I was different. I just was different. And anything that is different is threatening to other people. So they would pick on me. So I came to a point where it occurred to me that the only way I'm going to get out of this place is to do well in school and get out. So I did well in high school and ended up going to college and I did very well there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I ended up coming to a university in Delhi, Delhi School of Economics, which is a very prestigious school. And where what I experienced there was that almost everybody that was going to the program was planning to leave India was going to either the US or the UK or Australia or somewhere else for pursuing higher education. People want to do their MBAs or PhDs. You know, as that journey was going on, my life was great. You know, everything just happened for me. There was not a whole lot of setbacks or any bad experiences just kept evolving and and I got the visa to come to the United States. I got the permission from the Reserve Bank of India to get dollars, which was very, very difficult. What does that mean? India had a restricted currency at the time. This is in 1982. And you couldn't just go and buy US dollars to come to the United States to pay tuition and things like that, right? 
So you had to get the the permission from the Reserve Bank of India to get the dollars. Wow. And I mean, our family was not that wealthy, but you know, my father said, you go do your thing, I will figure this out. So he gave me a check for paying the tuition. But when I came here, the professor from my bachelor's time, who had his son in the United States at a university in Buffalo, he sort of took me under his wing and he helped me get a scholarship. Mm. But the funny thing is that, you know, I got the scholarship which included tuition waiver and a stipend of like $370 a month. So, you know, and I was living with four other Indians, so we ate a lot of potatoes, rice, and, and had milk, you know, and we took cooking turns and all that stuff. But I was distracted in the first semester, right, because of girls. <laughs> because, you know, I had never experienced that. So... I got put on a little bit of a probation at the end of the first semester, which meant my GPA was below 3.0. And because of girls. Because primarily of that. <laughs> and then the associate dean, I remember this so clearly in 1983 in January, I'm sitting across from her and she looked at me and she said, Ambuj, you know, she called me my, my full name. Yes. She's like, what happened? And I said... Doctor so and so, please give me another chance. And I promise. And that was like the turning point because I realized that I had to become responsible. And if I screwed up, I had to go back. Right. So then I stepped it up and, you know, did well in MBA. And then as I was doing the MBA, I was asked to consider doing a PhD. And again, just organically, it just happened. And so I did that. And then when you do a PhD, then the natural path of an Indian <laughs> at the time was to do a PhD and become a professor. Mm -hmm. So I went into being a professor. And you taught marketing at uh, SMU. SMU in Dallas, yeah. So you taught at SMU and then you went on to Deloitte. When I joined SMU, in teaching, the way I understood it was you get teaching awards and you publish in the top journals and you're good. Right. So I got teaching awards and I published in the top journals and it was good. The thing is, then you repeat it. So I repeated it. And then you repeat it again. So within three years of being there, I was like, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> There's no excitement in this. So I started doing consulting work and grew a consulting practice, which then I intersected with some people from Deloitte at a client and they wanted me to come on board. So I kind of took all my clients into Deloitte. And that is where I met somebody who had this one client in Indianapolis. So I was flying from Dallas. I was in Dallas at the time. Yep. I was flying from Dallas to Indianapolis and you know I was coming to have this meeting with this company, a timeshare exchange company. Yep. And I didn't know anything about racing, I didn't know anything about timeshare exchanging, I didn't know anything about Indianapolis, but here I was coming to have a meeting with the president of the company. And that company, its owner, sold the company during that year 
to this conglomerate that and, was very rapidly growing. And the president was going to become the CEO and he asked me to come on board. So I ended up coming on board. You know, it took some time for me to make that decision, but I ended up coming on board. And it was very exciting and scary because all of a sudden I had a staff to manage and I had never done that before. Like, you know, really have a staff, you know, in the U.S. combined, you know, it's like I think about 150 people that reported into me. And there was a big budget and we traveled around the world and, mm -hmm. you know, worked with timeshare developers and, and hotels, bringing them into the timeshare business and all that. So it was... Um, it was um, pretty daunting, actually. <laughs> to all of a sudden have a lot of revenue and a lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And you told me this off mic, but that was the company where you left and you didn't exercise your options. Yeah. And then some very bad news hit the wire. And this was before you even started your dot-com. What was the bad news that happened? That our parent company had merged with another company and created a combined entity. And what came out three, four months after the merger was finalized, that the other company had been cooking their books and the market value of the combined company went down by $25 billion or something in one day. So basically what that meant was my stock options went from all the money that I had to zero overnight. Mm -hmm. And it never recovered. So that was even before you lost your lost your ass in the dot-com. Yes, uh, thank you for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you had had some experience with disappointment prior to this, but when it really got bad was in that phase from not that losing presumably millions of dollars in, in the money options. Yeah isn't terrible but you're still not destitute right but in 2001 or in 1999 through 2002 you basically experienced this lack of solvency that you had never fathomed before right remember i'm from a different country i'm an immigrant i am educated i've had a successful career i am known for my mind and accomplishments and so there's a certain amount of pride in that is there extra pressure on you because of that on myself yeah as a white guy if i fail nobody cares <laughs> yeah right so that's, well that's actually, just expected right yeah uh, it actually is you know when when you leave um, and i don't know if other immigrants feel this but i think immigrants in general have this feeling that you know you left home so first of all, there's judgment around that. And then you come and do nothing with your life. That's really bad. So who are you worried about judging you? Your family, people back home, or people around you in the States? Both. I think it's both. We're going to go back to the end of the dark period. You got some consulting jobs, and then you were invited to come on full-time into a pretty big job. Yeah. So that was a, over a period of two years. And, you know, the serendipity of things kept happening during the time. I remember one day I was talking to my son and he said, Papa, I miss being in a neighborhood. 
I don't know if he meant or what he meant, but the idea of quote-unquote in a neighborhood was something that he missed. So by this time, I had been consulting for about a year, and the company in Atlanta, the CEO, the new CEO, he had said to me, hey, you're doing a lot of work for us. You know, I'd like for you to move to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, kids are in school. I'm good in Indianapolis. So I was kind of doing this commute thing going on. I was visiting a friend of mine in New York, and I mentioned something to him about you know what my son said. And he said, buy a house. I said, how? My credit score is literally like, I don't even know what it is. It's terrible. I have no money because I still had not you know, saved enough money. He said, I'll buy it. And you just service the, the mortgage. You've yeah. got good friends, man. People keep lending you money. Exactly. That is my point that through your actions and your behaviors and your decisions that you make throughout your life, you sow these seeds that you never know where and when you will need them. And it's really the generosity of really amazing people that helps you get through some very difficult times. Mm. I'm a living example of that. So, you know, he helped me buy the house. We moved there. And then a year goes by, the Atlanta guys, they were like, listen, you have to move to Atlanta. And I'm like, I don't know. So we were at a planning meeting in Vegas. He gave me an envelope in which was an offer letter. Like, wow. He said, you need to decide either you're moving or you are, you know, we can't continue to do this because you're so involved. So I flew back to Indianapolis and as I was going through the mail, there was a handwritten note in our mailbox. And it said, if you know of someone that wants to sell a house in this neighborhood, we're interested. <laughs> and I was like, what? So I called them. And they said, do you have any pictures? And I said, no, I don't have any pictures. So I, you know, there was no iPhones at the time. So I had to borrow somebody's camera, take some pictures, send them these pictures. Long story short, they bought the house. So from the time I was able to do that to the time I moved to Atlanta and bought a house was a very short, I think it was like two or three weeks, a couple of weeks. Wow. And in order for me to buy a house, that's another story. Because now I wanted to buy a house on my own because I had a job and I had a paycheck. But my credit was bad. And that's where the CFO of the company called the bank the bank that the company did business with and said, listen, one of our guys is moving and he has a, an issue with his credit. Can you help him? And the bank sent somebody to my office who helped me do the mortgage application and called their mortgage people. And they said, how much money do you need? Uh, and you guys must have had a lot of money on deposit with that bank. We did. We, did. we were an insurance company, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so there was quite a bit of money. I was able to get a mortgage, and I didn't have enough down payment money, so they gave me another loan for the down payment. And, I mean, it's just like, wow, this is an amazing life that just keeps happening 
for me, right? And then the company grew and... So what year is that that you moved to Atlanta? 2004. Okay. And in about a minute, what happened over the next 10 years? We had a phenomenal growth in the company. We acquired other smaller companies. We acquired teams of underwriters. And, you know, by 2013, we had grown the balance sheet quite significantly, about a thousand percent increase in, in our balance sheet. And uh, so the company was sold in 2013 to a Canadian conglomerate for a pretty decent amount of money. So you had a big exit. Yeah. I mean, not all mine. But, yeah, sure, no, but 10 years after or 12 yeah. years after having nothing and not really knowing what was going to happen with life, yeah. you make enough money to retire. Right. And really figure out what I want to do with my life. You know, so that's so this is a journey. pretty crazy 360 degree story. And not that 12 years is a short amount of time, but it's not forever either. Right. I've talked a lot recently to some younger people about careers and. A lot of times I think people think about careers going straight up and to the right and that there's never any interruptions, but indeed there've been some pretty crazy interruptions oh, it's, on yeah. your way to being yeah, the, materially the, successful. Yeah. There is absolutely no way that you can have a linear progression your entire life. You are going to have some bad things happen. It's mm. how you deal with it, how you react to it is what defines what happens. And ultimately, you know, how you feel uh, about where you're at. And, you know, funnily enough, I had, I had never felt afraid of money till I had money that I could actually lose. So you're more afraid of it now than you were? I became more afraid of losing what I had. And then... You know, now I'm at a point where I am not generating active revenue from my own activities. You know, we get investment income and so on. Sure. And neither my wife. My wife has a job, and you know, she is a school principal. And you know, it's um, it's taken me some time to work through the fear that I have felt of not making money from my actions, you know, it's kind of hard. And where do you sit with that today? Or how do you mollify that, that feeling? I have accepted it and it's not like a negative. You know, I feel blessed that I have an opportunity to look at opportunities, look at investments, mentor people. You know, I started, uh, uh, Nonprofit in 2016, mm-hmm. feed a billion. We have provided meals, five and a half million meals. We have funded five and a half million meals in, you know, India, Kenya, and the United States here at home. It's fantastic. It's a journey. It's just evolution of, I don't know where we are going. I don't know where, how things will evolve. There are times when I get a little concerned about, do we have enough money? to live for the rest of our lives. It's not a rational fear because technically, yes, we do. But on an irrational emotional basis, there's like, you know, what can happen? And I can, I can only see how people that are retiring or nearing retirement, you know, they are going through the same 
emotions. So there's really, when I look back at, at this whole journey of starting out to where I'm at now, this whole period of really essentially about 37 years, it's been like intense. <laughs> uh, it's been intense. How do you define success? How I define success now, <laughs> compared to how I used to, is really having the opportunity and the freedom to create and share experiences with the people that I love and the people that, I, that love me. And, and I feel very blessed to be able to do that, to go take a vacation or for the people to come and visit and I'm able to spend time with them. You know, like my parents came and they stayed with us for a, a while and I was able to be 100% present mm. with them. And my life was just spending time with them. Yeah. And it's just beautiful, you know, to be able to do that and be able to spend time with my wife and, you know, make her breakfast and pack her lunch and just things like that. So, but and I'm doing other things, you know, my yeah. things. Because what? by my nature, I can't sit still. Do you feel rich today? I feel rich, yes. I feel rich. What does that mean to you? Being able to do um, really whatever. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. So, you know, people want freedom. They want to become entrepreneurs because they want freedom and, and they don't want to work and so on. Let me tell you, when you literally have nothing that you have to do, it requires a level of discipline to want to do something, which you, we don't train for. No. You know, because we train for a job. We train for a paycheck. We train for creating a retirement nest egg. Yes. Okay. You do that. Then what do you do? That's why I'm doing this podcast. Right. That's you know, why, I mean, I went nuts after I quit working for a while. Yeah. It's the first six months are great, and then you lose your goddamn mind. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Because it's like, because, you, you know, you're a high achiever. You've had a successful career. I've been around and, and accomplished a lot of things. And the other thing is I want to share. I want to share my experiences to help people who are going through these journeys. And I want to say, own it. Own what you have. Don't feel bad about what you don't have. You know, just focus on what you can build and construct instead of pining about what you don't have. Because it will come. Along those lines, I really am fascinated about recovering from major short-term setbacks. What would you tell people who are in the midst of watching their worlds fall apart around them? It's very easy to feel overwhelmed with everything that we experience, especially when it's really unexpected bad things, right? And the way to go through all of that is literally to take one step at a time, take one event at a time, take one day at a time. When people say, you know, this proverbial take one day at a time, literally that's all you can do because you don't know <laughs> how the next day is going to, f to work out, right? Yeah. So you just kind of go through that. And there is no, 
excessive amount of time planning for the future and what will happen and what won't happen. And, and you, honestly, going through some of those intense experiences, what it has done for me is really helped me get more focused on the present. What's going on right now? As opposed to thinking about what happened and how it happened and really feeling bad about all of that or getting anxious and anxiety about what is going to happen the only thing that is here is now and just i'm grateful to be honest with you because of the experiences that i've had is it it helped me see things and realize things that i never thought that i needed to realize and it's beautiful in that Let's talk about Feedabillion. Is that what you want to spend the rest of your working years building and pointing to as the last accomplishment? Not the last, but the yeah. the biggest accomplishment of the next phase of your life? That's one part of what I want. What I want is really help people see that they can do their Feedabillion, that they can do whatever it is that they think is hard to do, that you can do it. If I, growing up with two toilets for 32 people, can <laughs> do what I have been able to do by just going through the process and doing one thing at a time and just taking the steps and allowing for things to happen and come, anybody else can do it, you know? And I just want to spread that. And part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because this is a story of this swing that I had that I've not really talked about very much. And I think it is something that helps people. It has the potential to help people. I agree. And that's why I wanted you to tell the story because understanding that you can lose everything that, or appear to lose everything, lose all your material things anyway. Yeah. And that you can come back from that is an inspiring tale. Thank you. And I appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. Thank you. If anybody is interested in finding out more about you, where can they find you? Really LinkedIn, AJ Jane is one option, or Feedabillion, you know, just AJ at feedabillion.org. People can send me an email and I will definitely take the time to respond. Cool. And connect. Thanks for joining us, AJ. Appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. That's AJ Jane, folks. Feedabillion.org really good organization that AJ's got going on right now. He's trying to feed a lot of local people. So if you have a few bucks, you can spare, share it with AJ. Thanks for your time. Hope you're doing good. Hang in there, y'all. Bye.